It's wonderful to see all of you. Many beloved faces. Welcome to guests and uh, members. So uh, it's a privilege to worship our great God and Savior Jesus Christ together this morning. I invite you to turn in the old, to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, shorter book. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk 1, 12 to 2, 4. That's where we are this morning. Let's hear God's word together. Habakkuk 1, 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. So is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning, concerning my complaint. The Lord answered me, Write to the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess this morning that all your ways, all your decrees are characterized by wisdom, goodness, and justice, even when we can't see how your ways are wise and good and just. All that you do is right, and we ask, Lord, for grace to trust you, even when we don't have answers. Grant us to trust in your holy character and trust the promises of your word, even when life is confusing, even when it doesn't make sense, even when lived experience seems to contradict the truth of your word. Let us trust you. Let us trust our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, teach us to rely not on ourselves, on our wisdom, on our knowledge, on our righteousness, but let us rely moment by moment on you, the resources of strength and wisdom uh, and grace that you provide. Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to accomplish your good purposes in our lives individually and collectively. We pray that you would sanctify us through your truth. Father, if there are those here with us this morning who do not know the Savior, we pray that you would graciously grant them repentance and faith. Let them see their need for a Savior. Let them place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for the glory of your name and their eternal joy. Be pleased to bless the proclamation of your word this morning, we ask. Amen. Uh, the biblical writers, just like us, are vexed by uh, the, uh, a moral discrepancy that we see all around us. 
It's often the case that the wicked, those who despise God, reject his commandments, do what they want. The wicked often prosper and flourish. Their businesses flourish. They have money. They have ease. They have pleasure. And the righteous and those who love the Lord and seek to do his will are often embattled, struggling, afflicted. Maybe you felt that way. Why, Lord, do the wicked prosper and your people suffer? There's a very robust, a very vigorous statement of that theme in Psalm 73. Uh, In verses 12 and 14, the psalmist writes, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. You ever feel that way? Look out at the world. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he's speaking here as one of the righteous. Lord, I've sought you and I've experienced uh, heartache after heartache, challenge after challenge, but the wicked, they seem to go from strength to strength. You've noticed this discrepancy perhaps as you've observed the world, observed your own life. And this tension raises two questions. One theoretical, we might say, and one practical. The theoretical question is how do we understand this in light of God's commitment to justice? Uh, And our passage this morning in Habakkuk partly answers that, but it especially answers the second question. How should we live in a world where the wicked often prosper or seem to prosper and the righteous are afflicted? How do we conduct ourselves in a way that's honoring to God? How then should we live in this dark world where there seems to be a moral imbalance? And this passage, as I say, that we're looking at this morning especially answers that question. We'll consider three things this morning as we look at Habakkuk. Number one, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. Number two, the right way to respond when God's ways are confusing. The right way to respond when God's ways are confusing. Number three, how should we... How you should live when the evil prosper. How you should live when the evil prosper. Those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Before jumping into the text, though, let me uh, give you the context here. The historical context is Habakkuk is a prophet of the Lord, uh, proclaiming the message of the Lord to Judah, the southern kingdom, sometime around 610 B.C., a few decades before the fierce, warlike Babylonians or Chaldeans arrive and sack Jerusalem and deport God's people. So a few decades before that traumatic event, he's ministering. And the first section of the book, as we saw last week, involves Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord. He looks out at society, Jerusalem, Judah, and he sees the wicked prospering. He sees the righteous being afflicted. Uh, The law is paralyzed. God's judgments are not enforced. And he says, Lord, are you just looking at all of this oppression and wickedness in in society, and are you just going to ignore it? Is there no justice, Lord? Are you going to sit idly by? So that's his first complaint. And God answers uh, Habakkuk's first complaint and says, actually, I'm well aware of the injustice, and I'm doing something about it. And do you want to know what I'm doing about it? I am raising up a people the Babylonians, who are going to come and who are going to bring down my wrath and judgment upon Judah. I'm not indifferent to the oppression that you're seeing, and in due course, I'll bring judgment. But God's answer to Habakkuk's first question raises still more questions. Habakkuk is frankly appalled by God's answer. 
and feels like the answer to his question actually creates more problems. How can you take these fierce, these cruel Babylonians, who are more wicked than even we are, and allow them to destroy us? How is that just? And that's the second complaint that we will especially look at today in verses 12 through 17. God's answer to his first complaint creates more problems for Habakkuk, and so he asks another set of questions of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verses 2 through the end of the chapter, the Lord responds to Habakkuk's complaint, his second complaint, and we will look especially at the first four verses of the response. But Habakkuk begins with this robust expression of confidence in the Lord. Before he complains or asks questions or anything like that, he begins with a robust statement of his confidence in the Lord whose ways he is questioning. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, This rhetorical question is a way of affirming that God is indeed from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning. He has life in himself. He will always exist, always reign. He is supreme, exalted, glorious over his creation. That is the God to whom Habakkuk speaks. And he is holy. He is separate from his creation, uniquely exalted over all things, high and lifted up. That's the God that Habakkuk is going to wrestle with and question. That uh, phrase, we shall not die, is a little bit difficult. Uh, It's not entirely clear what Habakkuk is getting at. The best reading, it seems, is that this is an expression of confidence. That even though the Lord is bringing judgment, judgment is not the last word. He is loyal to his people and they shall not die. And in the second half of the verse, Habakkuk acknowledges that God indeed will bring judgment through the Chaldeans. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Uh, The word ordained indicates that these fierce Babylonians are instruments in the hand of God. They are his sword for bringing down judgment on Judah. The reason they experience the success that they experience and swallow up one nation after another is because God has decreed that it be so. He lifts up empires and he casts them to the ground. Now this would not, would not of course, have been the perspective of the people in Habakkuk's day. They would have looked at Babylon and they would have been impressed by Babylon's military power. Indeed, Babylon was impressed by her own military power. She was confident that she would succeed because of her own strength. But Habakkuk has given us a different perspective. It's not finally Babylon's military strength. It is the eternal decree of the Lord that causes them to be exalted for a season and ultimately brings them down. He is in control. He is in charge. Then he moves from this to the heart of his complaint in in verses 13 through 17. The essential complaint in verse 13 is that God's actions in history don't match his character. God's actions don't seem to be aligning with what Habakkuk knows to be true about God. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. It's one of the classic statements in scripture of God's moral purity. God is so pure. Uh, God is good through and through to such a degree that he can't even look at evil. His eyes are too pure to even behold it. 
Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that God is not aware of evil. He is. But this is a poetic way of capturing God's utter and complete moral purity. Everything God does, everything he decrees is pure and right and good through and through. Everything that he decrees for you, by the way, is good and right and wise through and through. That's who God is. But if that's who God is, if that's his character, and here's the dilemma, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The man, uh, the wicked in this context refers to the Babylonians and the man more righteous to the people of Judah. Now, he's not saying the people of Judah are righteous. We've seen how God, he complains earlier that they're wicked and he asks God to judge them. Nevertheless, the Babylonians are worse. They're more cruel. How is it, God, that you're going to take a people who are more cruel and wicked than we are and use them as your instrument to bring judgment on us? It seems like you are increasing injustice to bring about justice. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit with what I know to be true about your character, Lord. That's the dilemma. That's the question. And he goes on to explain his complaint. He compares the nations of the world to fish in the sea. The fish have no ruler to help organize them, to protect them against the fisherman's hook and the fisherman's net. They are vulnerable when that uh, sharp hook gets lodged in their mouths. When the net comes and sweeps all before it, the fish are done. They have nowhere to go. That's how he views the nations of the world compared to Babylon. Babylon, on the other hand, is like the fisherman. He takes his hook, he throws it into the sea, and he yanks out the nations. He takes his net, he drags it, and he sweeps all before it. He lifts it up from the sea, and the net is engorged with wriggling fish. And so Babylon rejoices and is glad, glad at the plunder that they extract from the people. And, and so Babylon sacrifices to his net, the net that was used to capture the fish. The instrument of his victory now becomes his god. Babylon worships its military might because through its military might, it lives in luxury. It enjoys rich food. That's who the Babylonians are. They're idolaters. They trust in themselves rather than in the Lord. Why are these people going to destroy us when they are more wicked than even we are? And Habakkuk then asks a second question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I think Habakkuk feels here, maybe like Europeans felt sometime around 1940, middle of 1940, when the German war machine took over Poland and Belgium and the Netherlands and France. And at some point you wonder, at that, is there no end? Is there no end to their uh, prowess, these panzer divisions that steamroll over everything? Will this go on forever? There's, it's not clear that anybody can stop them. That's perhaps how Habakkuk felt. Who can stop these Chaldeans that go from nation to nation? Is there no end to their killing spree, to their victory over the nations? Now, I want you to notice the irony here. I've hinted at it already. Habakkuk asks the Lord in the first part of the book, Lord, how is it you can tolerate such injustice among your people? And God gives him an answer. And the irony is that instead of satisfying him, the answer throws him into deeper confusion. It startles him. It upsets him. It challenges him. It's so counterintuitive, God is going to use a worse people to judge Judah. The problem isn't resolved. It's worsened. It's almost as though the, 
the cure is worse than the, the disease in Habakkuk's eyes. He wouldn't do it the way the Lord is doing it. This is surprising, challenging, and counterintuitive. And it reinforces the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways. God frequently does not act according to human expectations and methods and wisdom. God is perfect and infinite in his wisdom. His ways are best. And he often acts in counterintuitive, unexpected, surprising, and challenging ways. He doesn't act according to our script. He has his own script. Now, when we recognize that, we won't be too quick to assume that God isn't working where he's not working the way we expect him to. A lot of times we have a blueprint in our minds of the way God should be working in the world, in the church, and in our lives. And when God doesn't operate according to that blueprint, we conclude, oh, God must not be working. But God frequently works in unexpected and surprising ways such that he's accomplishing his purposes even when it seems like he's not accomplishing his purposes. So we should be very, very slow to conclude, oh, God's not in this because it's not, things are not unfolding the way I expect. Well, why should they unfold according to the way you expect? What if he's got a better way from point A to point B than you have? It's a good example of this in the book of Acts. Uh, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel spreads like wildfire in Jerusalem. Uh, the church's numbers are swelling day by day. Even many, many uh, priests are converted. And we might uh, not fault one of those early Christians for looking at what God was doing and saying, God's plan is to take Jerusalem by storm, to bring the gospel to Jerusalem. People will be converted. It will be glorious. But then something unexpected happens. A vicious persecution breaks out and many of the believers in, Act, in uh, Jerusalem are scattered. And to a, a Christian in the Jerusalem church, they might have looked at that and said, why is God not working? Why is he allowing his kingdom to take a step back? This, this doesn't fit with what he seems to have been doing. The uh, irony, of course, is that it's because of the persecution that many ardent evangelists are actually expelled from Jerusalem. And so they're strewn throughout the whole Roman Empire and they bring the gospel to cities all over the place, and God's kingdom advances even more as a result of the persecution. God takes a step forward by seeming to take a step back. God's ways are often not our ways. He's accomplishing his purposes sometimes even when it seems like he isn't. And what is true at the macro, global, big picture level is also true of our lives individually. So often we pray, Lord, I want to become a patient person. That's a big one for me. I don't know what your, what your petitions are. Patience, Lord. More love, more patience. You pray, Lord, help me to be patient, loving, kind. Um, and we expect to become more patient, loving, kind. But what we find often is maybe the reverse of that. We discover we're more selfish than we realized. We're more tempted to be impatient. God's not working. This, he's not answering my prayer. What if he is? What if that's God's counterintuitive way of answering that kind of prayer? John Newton, the famous writer of Amazing Grace, wrote a hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And here's what he says in that hymn. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. I hope that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request. 
Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. So he prays the prayer. Notice what his expectation was. God would zap him. And all at once, he would wake up and be a loving, patient person. That was the blueprint that he had for God. And what does God do? God unleashes hell, as it were. Assaults him at every part of his being. Things seem to get worse, not better. And he, he's perplexed. How, Lord, you're, have you ignored my prayer? No, no. This is how I answer that type of prayer. Those areas where you think I'm not working, I'm especially working. The dead ends. The places in your life that feel like a dead end or a failure and shouldn't be there. We often feel like God's not in that. Often God's working most busily precisely in those areas. Where we think, oh, God's not, God's not working here. He works in counterintuitive, unexpected ways. So trust that he is doing good. Even when you don't understand how, rest in him. That's the first thing we notice. God's ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. Second thing to notice, uh, Habakkuk's response to his confusion about God's actions is instructive. Here is the right way to respond to God when you're confused about what he's doing in your life. Verse 1, chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. In other words, I'm going to bring my questions and uncertainty about God to God. I'm going to come to the Lord with my doubt, with my questions, and say, Lord, help me to understand. And even before that, it's interesting that at no point does Habakkuk doubt the character of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God. What troubles Habakkuk is how God can be good, but act the way that he does and use this wicked nation to accomplish his purposes. But at no point does he say, God, you're not good. God, you're not just. Instead, what he says, God, you are just and you are good, but I don't see how that fits with my lived experience. And we know what that's like, don't we? God, you say these things in your word that you're my father, but I feel crushed. I feel unloved. I feel forsaken. I feel like everything's falling apart. How, how can you be good and how can you be my father when this is my experience? And Habakkuk's example would, would say to us, trust God even when you don't have answers to those questions. Affirm that God is good and wise and just, even when you have absolutely no idea how he's good and wise and just in these specific circumstances. Trust that he is. Trust that he has a plan, and he knows how to connect the dots in ways that you can't anticipate. And it will bring you joy one day when you see how those dots are connected, even though right now you don't understand. Trust God even when his ways don't make sense. Trust that he's just and good. There's a big difference between the person who says, Lord, I believe you are good, but I don't understand how your goodness is operating in this situation. There's a big difference between that person and the person who says, God, you are not good. That's unbelief. Faith, when it wrestles with God, affirms God, affirms his truth, affirms his goodness, and says, Lord, but I don't, I don't know how to put the pieces together but there's still a fundamental trust in God. And as I said, notice that he takes his doubts, his questions to God himself and says, Lord, help me. 
What do people often do when, when their idea about God doesn't fit with their life? What do they often do? What's the temptation? To run from God. To say, God, I thought you were good. My, my children are sick. I thought you were good. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. The, the confusion drives them from God. But notice in Habakkuk's case, the confusion drives him toward God, not from God. And he says, God, I don't get it. Help me to understand I'm looking to you to give me light from above. And even until you do, even in, until things clarify, I will trust in you. We're invited by Scripture to take our confusion, the things that are not clear about God's ways with us, and bring them to, to him and say, Lord, help me to understand. But even until you, do, you make things clear, I will trust in you. It's the right way to respond to times in our life where we feel confused about how God can be both good and bring us through what he's bringing us through. Third thing then to notice. The right way to live in a world where the wicked frequently prosper and the righteous are frequently afflicted. The people of God are frequently afflicted. Uh, this is what verses 2 through 4 get at. So Habakkuk has brought his complaint to the Lord. Lord, help me understand. And now God, for the second time in this book, makes himself known to Habakkuk. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. So you need to inscribe what I'm about to reveal to you. Uh, on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Uh, that's another difficult uh, phrase in this particular section. It's not entirely clear what Habakkuk means by so he may run who reads it. One possibility is that the letters are going to be inscribed so clearly and perhaps so large that even if someone's running, they can read the tablets and see them clearly and read them clearly. Possibly. Uh, more likely in my view is that the one who runs, runs in the sense that he runs in the truth that God has revealed to Habakkuk or lives according to that truth. That seems to be what's in view. And the, the vision that God gives to Habakkuk needs to be written down because the fulfillment of the vision is still future. Verse 3, the vision awaits its appointed time. God will act, but that time for God's action is still future and so the promise of his action needs to be inscribed beforehand. Now, one of the big interpretive questions in Habakkuk is what exactly does the word vision refer to in the book? Like what part of Habakkuk chapter 2 and chapter 3 is the vision mentioned in verse 2? And there are some scholars who say the vision is verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. And it's certainly the case that that's probably the central verse in Habakkuk. The central affirmation of the book shows us how to live in a dark world, and we'll come to it in a moment. Uh, but I think that while that is part of the vision, it's not the whole vision. Uh, one reason for thinking that the vision includes more than that is there is a reference to tablets, plural. If verse 4 were the whole thing, you wouldn't need multiple tablets, would you? You'd need one tablet, maybe even a piece of cloth, right? It's very short. So, so the need for multiple tablets suggests that the message is actually bigger than that. And more significantly still, if we look at the question posed by Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 17, his question to God is, God, are you going to allow this to go on forever, the Babylonians to go from strength to strength? Then as we keep reading chapter 2, 6 to the end of the chapter, God answers that question. And he says, no, I'm actually going to judge them. 
Their time is coming. They're going to be judged, and my people are going to be vindicated. So assuming that the vision that God gives to Habakkuk answers his question, uh, assuming that that's the case, we should then include uh, the whole chapter, the whole of chapter 2 and possibly even chapter 3. That's what the vision refers to. That's what's in view. Uh, God is saying to Habakkuk, look, Habakkuk, I know you're worked up about justice. I know you see that the Babylonians are more wicked than the people of Judah, and they're being allowed to have their way with the nations of the world. But listen, I care about justice more than you, and their day is coming. The day of judgment upon Babylon and the Chaldeans is fixed. It will come at its appointed time, and my people will be vindicated. But in the meantime, you need to wait patiently. That's the message of verse 3. You need to wait for the salvation of the Lord and for the judgment to come. Uh, part of God's answers to Hab uh, uh, answer to Habakkuk is that uh, he cares about justice. He's going to bring his judgment, but he's going to do so on a different timeline than Habakkuk would like. Habakkuk is impatient. He wants justice and judgment now. And God is saying, no, it's coming, but it's coming according to my timeline. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. Judgment is coming. But in the meantime, you and the righteous in Judah need to confidently and quietly and patiently trust in my word. There is a day coming when, when judgment will occur, uh, wrongs will be righted. That day is coming, but until then, you need to trust in my word, be patient, and do good. And this is reinforced by verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, within him. This is a reference to Babylon, very arrogant, self-reliant, boasts in its military strength. And their arrogance is contrasted with the righteous. Verse 4b is like the statement, the critical statement in the book of Habakkuk, picked up three times in crucial passages in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the reason this verse is so important in the book of Habakkuk is because it tells us practically how we ought to be living in a world where injustices seem to happen everywhere, the wicked seem to go unpunished, the righteous are afflicted. How should we live in this kind of dark environment? Verse 4 tells us, the righteous shall live by his faith. Righteous here refers to those who have a relationship with the Lord, who are loyal to him, committed to him, walking in obedience. Uh, they shall live by faith his faith. And we could translate that word faith as faithfulness. That's what the Hebrew word frequently means, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. Um, but we should then ask the question, what does this faithfulness mean? What does it mean to be faithful to God in this context? And verse 3 clarifies, the one who is faithful to God is the one who patiently waits for God's promises to be fulfilled. To be faithful in dark times means you say, Lord, I believe in your word. I believe that justice will be done, judgment is coming, and we will be vindicated, and so I await your salvation. I wait for you to act and walk in obedience in the meantime. So faith and faithfulness in this verse are basically identical. The righteous, those who belong to God, are those who trust in the word of the Lord. Father, it's dark right now. Uh, wickedness seems to be sprouting all around us. But we believe that a time is coming when you will punish evildoers and you will bring relief to your children. We believe that you will do that. 
And so in the, present, in the present, we will walk in obedience. We will submit ourselves to your commands. We will seek to do good as we rest in your word. That's how we should live in difficult times. Trusting in the word of the Lord, trusting that he will one day balance the scales of justice, that the wicked will be expelled from the earth, that those who belong to him will delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, for Habakkuk's original audience, the vision referred to judgment on Babylon in history. Right? But we need to understand that God's judgment on the nations, including the nation of Babylon, is a foretaste of final judgment on all the wicked when Jesus Christ returns. A day is coming when all the wicked of the earth, all the oppressors, the violent, the evildoers, those who despise and reject God and oppress his people, a day is coming when Christ returns when he will judge the wicked and cast them out of his renewed creation and those who trust in the Lord will delight themselves in abundant peace. All things will be made new. When Christ returns, we will see him in his glory and splendor. All the nations of the earth will. He will restore what is broken. He will wipe every tear from every eye. And we will at last have the peace, the righteousness that we longed for. Justice will be perfectly executed and there will be peace. And so just as Habakkuk's original hearers were told to wait for the promise of the Lord to be fulfilled, so also we are told to wait for the coming of the Lord who is going to put all things right. Be patient. Don't be discouraged by the evil around you. Don't lose heart. Don't give way to unbelief. Persevere. Trust that God will fulfill his promise in due course. Christ will return. Intriguingly, that's exactly how the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, chapter 10, uh, that, that's exactly how Hebrews uses Habakkuk 2.4 as a call to believers to endure in the face of life's hardships because Christ is coming. Hebrews 10.36-38 You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews uses Habakkuk in a way that's very similar to the way that verse is used in Habakkuk, which is to say, press on. Don't be discouraged by the opposition, by the persecution, by the darkness of this present world. Judgment is coming. There is relief for the people of God, and it's around the corner. Jesus is coming back. Keep going. Wait patiently for the word of the Lord to be fulfilled. The idea is similar also to James 5, 7 through 8. Listen carefully. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When we see the evil around us, when we see the evildoers prospering, good people afflicted, God's people afflicted, how should we live? Habakkuk tells us. We should remember that God has promised to intervene in history and put things right. And in his time, not ours, in his time, he will do it. So be calm, be patient, wait. Trust in him. Trust in him to provide for you in the present and walk in obedience. Do the good that he has called you to do 
even as you wait for that final intervention of Jesus Christ? Is that how you're living in the midst of this present darkness? Trusting in the Lord, walking in obedience, not easily shaken by the darkness around you. I want to conclude by leaving you with four specific ways that this faith in God and in his word manifests itself practically in life. So we know that we are trusting in the Lord, that we will be delivered. Uh, We know that we are trusting in the Lord in the midst of difficult times when we don't walk away from Christ in the midst of that difficulty, but persevere in faith. What's the temptation when we face hardship and darkness? It's to become resentful towards God, bitter towards God, and to walk away. To walk in faith means you keep trusting in Jesus no matter what comes. No matter how confused you might be, how difficult life is, you confess publicly Jesus is your Lord, you seek to walk in obedience, and you do not turn from Jesus Christ. You persevere to the end. Perseverance, endurance, is a sign that you are trusting in the word of the Lord. Another way suffering uh, tempts us, and this is made evident in the book of Hebrews, uh, when we're persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ, when there is social opposition because of our belief in Jesus, there is a temptation to find relief from that persecution by disowning Jesus. That was the temptation faced by uh, the Christians addressed in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, And to walk in faith means that we won't seek relief by turning from Jesus. We will continue to endure hardship and publicly confess him as our Lord, whatever the cost. Second indication of faith. Uh, We don't become selfish, but we remain committed to helping others follow Jesus Christ. This is a temptation, isn't it, when the world is dark and we feel that we have our backs up against the wall. The temptation is to start thinking about yourself and your family, and you become defensive, and you think only about how things can go well for you. The, the man and woman of faith, though, even in dark times, difficult times, looks around at the people around them and considers, how can I help them follow Jesus Christ? How can I help my coworkers, my neighbors, know Jesus? How can I use my money and time for the advancement of Christ's kingdom? How can I disciple my children, my spouse, so that they would grow in their knowledge of Jesus? Even in dark times, the man and woman of faith are other-oriented. They don't collapse in on themselves and think narrowly of how they can do well. They continue to pursue others. Three, to walk by faith in dark times means that we don't neglect the church, but we, are, we continue to be committed to living with fellow believers. We don't isolate ourselves, go our, our own way. We continue to gather with God's people to adore our great God and Savior, and we continue to pursue rich community where we are known and where we know others, and where we can grow through the fellowship of God's people. Those who walk away from the fellowship of the church are in spiritual danger. And we express our faith in dark times by continuing in that fellowship. And finally, number four, we exhibit faith in dark times by remaining joyful, cheerful, because of our confidence in Jesus Christ. We do not become anxious and grim, We continue to laugh, we continue to sing, because Jesus is Lord and his word will come to pass. This is beautifully captured by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Horse and His Boy. He describes King Loon, uh, the king of Arkenland, in this way. This is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. 
What does it mean to be a king? When, when you don't have enough food and there's poverty, you put on your best clothes and you laugh louder than everybody. And you can only be King Loon and you can only do that when you have faith. You get, when only, only when you believe that Christ is on the throne and he will accomplish his purposes for his people, only then can you have that kind of joy in the midst of heartache and suffering and difficulty. A sign that you are building your life on God's promise, not on circumstances, is you're not controlled by anxiety and fear. You've retained a cheerfulness of spirit because of your confidence in the word of God. Indeed, interestingly, that's how Habakkuk concludes. Very famous lines. Uh, Habakkuk concludes this way, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How can you rejoice in hard times? By knowing the Lord, walking in close fellowship with him, knowing his promises. That's what keeps your heart light when the world is heavy and dark. If that's not your anchor, your joy will be taken uh, from you by adverse circumstances. But those who walk with the Lord will be able to continue singing even in the night. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would deepen our faith in you, in your word. Let us not be easily shaken by the stresses and troubles of this life, by this dark world. Let, her keep our, let us keep our eyes firmly on Christ. Let us walk in the sure knowledge of his return. Uh, let us persevere, Lord, in doing the good that you've called us to do. Let us live not for ourselves, but for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Use it to mold us, causing us to reflect the character of your son more and more. Amen.